Hi, and welcome to Long Live the Queen, where we talk about the women who made history. And by we, I mean the royal we, because it's just me. This week, our subject is Anne Boleyn. It's here, guys. Anne Boleyn week. It's the most requested of this line of podcasts because it's Anne Boleyn. So here we go. Anne Boleyn was the second of three surviving children of Thomas Boleyn and Elizabeth Howard. She was born probably in 1501, the same year that 16-year-old Catherine of Aragon came to England to marry Prince Arthur. The dynamic of her parents' marriage was unusual. Think Jaquetta of Luxembourg and Sir Richard Woodville vibes. If you listen to Jaquetta's episode, you'll get that. And if you didn't, you should check it out. Jaquetta's pretty cool. Anne's father, Thomas, wasn't noble. He was gentry. His father was a knight. They were wealthy, but not noble. They were just allowed to fraternize with the nobles. Anne's great-grandfather had made his money as a hatter, maybe a mad hatter. If you needed a fancy hat made, he was your first stop, or at least he was your servant's first stop. The Bolins were new money, But they were interested in using their money to raise their station, like many people had before them. Anne's mother, Elizabeth Howard, was noble. They could trace her family all the way back to Edward I. Her father was a duke, so a pretty high-level noble. He had been in power during the reign of the House of York kings, Edward IV and his brother Richard III. When the Tudors took over, He was attained, stripped of his lands and titles, and imprisoned in the Tower of London for nine years. But, left turn alert, he had the opportunity to escape, and he was all, nah, bro, I'm good. Toad's repentant. So, the new head bitch in charge, King Henry VII, was like, this guy is loyal, and I'm in. And just like that, he was in with the new administration. But that had been a close call. So he would have to marry his daughter off to a loyal tutor, just to kind of firm up his unspoken alliance. Elizabeth's mother, also named Elizabeth, had been lady-in-waiting to the queen, Elizabeth Woodville, before her husband's imprisonment, and lady of the bedchamber to her daughter, also named Elizabeth, the first tutor queen after his imprisonment. Elizabeth's everywhere. This may be why, when Anne had her first daughter, she was named Elizabeth. So the wealthy but not noble Thomas Boleyn was married to the noble family but reputation in tatters Elizabeth Howard. These are the parents of Anne Boleyn. She came by her social climbing honestly. Anne had an older sister Mary and a younger brother George. Their mother Elizabeth Howard was one of Queen Catherine's ladies both when she was married to Prince Arthur and when she was married to King Henry. So she would have known Margaret Plantagenet Pole, another lady-in-waiting to the queen and relative of the king. She has an episode. Go check it out. Now, Anne's mother was said to be fairly pretty. Word on the street was that King Henry had an affair with Anne's mother and could be Anne Boleyn's father. But Anne was probably only about 10 years younger than Henry. And I don't think 10-year-old Henry was picking up married noble ladies, but that's just me. He also got around later in life, so a relationship with her mother could have started later. He was about 10 years older than Anne, though, making him only 11 years younger than her mother, and 
That was close enough for him. In 1509, King Henry VII died. The king is dead. Long live the king. 17-year-old Prince Henry was now King Henry VIII, and he was getting married to his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. Anne Boleyn would have only been an eight-year-old little girl at this point. She wouldn't have been at most of the functions, but she was likely caught up in the excitement of the country. Anne's father, Thomas, was made the English ambassador to the Low Countries, or as we know it, the Netherlands. It was there that he became friendly with Margaret of Austria, who was so impressed with Thomas that she agreed to accept his 11-year-old daughter, Anne, as maid of honor or junior lady-in-waiting. Anne's early education was typical for women of her class. In 1513, she was invited to join the schoolroom of Margaret of Austria, the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, and her four wards. This was kind of European finishing school. It was a pretty elite position to get. Her academic education was limited to arithmetic, her family genealogy, grammar, history, reading, spelling, and writing. She also developed domestic skills, such as dancing, embroidery, good manners, household management, music, needlework, and singing. Anne learned to play games such as cards, chess, and dice. She was also taught archery, falconry, horseback riding, and hunting. Margaret affectionately called Anne La Petite Boleyn because she was younger than the other girls at only 12 when she arrived. Anne made a good impression in the Netherlands with her manners and studiousness. Margaret reported that she was well-spoken and pleasant for her young age and told Thomas that his daughter was so presentable and so pleasant considering her youthful age that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you to me. Anne stayed with Margaret from spring 1513 until her father arranged for her to attend Henry VIII's sister Mary, who was about to marry Louis XII of France in October 1514, so about a year and a half. She had a fairly good education in European court traditions, and Mary was about to go to France to become their queen. Queen Mary was married at 18 to 52-year-old King Louis of France. That's quite the age difference. Anne and her sister Mary would have traveled with her to France for the wedding and to attend her afterwards. But Louis died just three months after the wedding because it was the 16th century and he was 52. And Mary was off back to England for her second marriage to a cute boy below her station, so good for her. If we cover the Queens of France, we will cover that story, but thank Catherine of Valois and Owen Tudor. In France, Anne was maid of honor to Queen Mary, and then to Mary's 15-year-old stepdaughter, Queen Claude, with whom she stayed for nearly seven years. She liked French court. She didn't want to go home to England. In the Queen's household, she completed her study of French and developed interests in art, fashion, illuminated manuscripts, literature, music, poetry, and religious philosophy. She also acquired knowledge of French culture, dance, etiquette, literature, music, and poetry, and gained experience in flirtation and courtly love. Flirting in the 16th century, in France specifically, was seen as a very worthy pastime, with clever quips and chivalry 
It was a fun game that they all played. Anne's education in France proved itself in later years, inspiring many new trends among the ladies and courtiers of England. A contemporary poem about Catherine of Aragon complimented Anne's passing excellent skill as a dancer. Here, he wrote, was a fresh young damsel that could trip and go. She was a good dancer. She was fun. During this time, there was a Renaissance man at French court. He could draw, and sometimes he drew inventions or ideas. He was a little out of the box, but he was interesting. We don't know for sure how much attention this older, odd man got from the teenage Anne Boleyn. Maybe she didn't notice him at all. This man, though, was Leonardo da Vinci. Anne Boleyn could have easily been in the same room with Leonardo da Vinci. They were at the same court at the same time. Leonardo da Vinci died in France in 1519 at the age of 67 when Anne was 18. Anne was a teenager at French court with her older sister, Mary. Mary was getting into trouble at this flirtatious French court. Mary was 20 and killed it at courtly love. She was an excellent flirt. King Francois of France was 25, married to Queen Claude, and expected to have a mistress. Like King Henry, now 28, he liked his wife's ladies-in-waiting. She was not only the King of France's mistress, but she also had liaisons with a handful of his friends. French court was a little more sexually open than English court was. Thomas Boleyn called his eldest daughter back from France and married her to a minor noble who was friends with the English king. Henry VIII attended his friend's marriage to Mary Boleyn and then decided to make his new friend's wife his own mistress. She had been the mistress of a king before and the young king of France and the young king of England had a bit of a rivalry. So sharing a mistress was very on brand for them. Anne stayed in France and gained a mentor, the sister of the King of France, Marguerite. Marguerite was nine years older than Anne, and she had a new interest, reforming the Catholic Church. Following the example set by her mother, Marguerite became the most influential woman in France during her lifetime, when her brother ascended to the crown as Francois I in 1515. Her salon, known as New Parnassus, became famous internationally. They talked about a lot of new ideas, and Protestantism had been thrown around as an option against the Catholic Church. This early education would have some pretty major consequences for both Anne and England in the future. The following year, King Henry and Queen Catherine went to France on a diplomatic mission. They went to the Field of Cloth of Gold a summit between King Henry of England and King Francois of France. Each king tried to outshine the other with dazzling tents and clothes, huge feasts, music, jousting, and games. The tents and costumes displayed so much cloth of gold and expensive fabric woven with silk and gold thread that the site of the meeting was named after it. The most elaborate arrangements were made for the accommodation of the two monarchs and their large retinues. And on Henry's part, especially, no efforts were spared to make a great impression in Europe with this meeting. This was around the time that King Henry decided that Mary Boleyn would definitely be his next mistress, maybe finding out that she had been mistress to the French king. 
1522, Anne was also recalled from France to marry her cousin, her Irish cousin, James Butler, a young man several years older than she was, who was living at English court. The marriage was intended to settle a dispute over title and estates. The short version is that her dad and his dad were fighting over a title, and they settled it by agreeing to marry their children to each other. But the marriage negotiations came to a halt for unknown reasons. As the daughter of a courtier, Thomas Boleyn, by the new year in 1522, Anne had gained a position at the royal court as lady-in-waiting to Queen Catherine with her sister Mary. Her public debut was at a court event called Chateau Vert, a pageant in honor of the imperial ambassadors. She played Perseverance. Foreshadowing? If you know much about Anne Boleyn, it's definitely foreshadowing. All wore gowns of white satin embroidered with gold thread. Suspend any feminist views you may hold temporarily, because the Renaissance was not about feminism. It was about flirting and damsels in distress being saved by their chivalric heroes. So the premise of this play that she was in was that women named after positive feminine attributes like perseverance, beauty, honor, and kindness were being held captive by women named after negative feminine attributes like disdain, jealousy, and scorn. The young men, this time including the king himself, then entered with names of positive masculine attributes like loyalty, gentleness, and liberty. And there were no negative masculine attributes because they didn't want to pull on that thread. A battle, in air quotes, ensued, and the women threw rose water at the men who threw fruit at them. That hardly seems fair. Like, maybe throw some rose water back. The men saved the good women, and then they danced, because why not? This is often portrayed as the moment when Henry fell in love with Anne. But he was sleeping with her sister at the time, so I don't know. She quickly established herself as one of the most stylish and accomplished women at the court, and soon a number of young men were competing for her. She was very popular in England. Ornickel writes that Anne was the perfect woman courtier. Her carriage was graceful, and her French clothes were pleasing and stylish. She danced with ease, had a pleasant singing voice, played the lute and several other musical instruments as well, and spoke French fluently a remarkable, intelligent, quick-witted, young noblewoman that first drew people into conversation with her and then amused and entertained them. In short, her energy and vitality made her the center of attention in any social gathering. Anne was the life of the party. Anne reveled in the attention she received from her admirers. The Bolin sisters were making quite a splash at English court. Both of them were ladies-in-waiting to Queen Catherine. Mary was also the mistress to Catherine's husband. I've said it before and I'll say it again. King Henry had a type and that type was his wife's ladies in waiting. Anne, during her sister's dalliance with the king, had a dalliance of her own. She was being courted by Henry Percy. He was a year younger than Anne and the two were very close. Henry Percy was 20 and finishing his training in the service of Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. Woolsey found out about Anne and Percy's relationship. He told Percy to cut it off, or I'm going to tell your father. And then he did. 
someone should have told Woolsey that snitches get stitches. But Henry Percy's father was an earl, and he was like, absolutely not. And Cardinal Woolsey agreed, Woolsey telling the younger Percy, I marvel not a little at thy peevish folly that thou would tangle and insure themselves with a foolish girl yonder in the court. I mean, Anne Boleyn. Subtle, Woolsey. <laughs> Subtle. I think everyone knew you were talking about Anne Boleyn before you straight up said it. Percy responded that he wouldn't deny or forsake Anne, and that he had gone so far before so many worthy witnesses that he knew not how to avoid himself, nor how to discharge his conscience. So they were in love, and they had made it fairly publicly known in front of everyone. Everyone knew it. Henry had already been betrothed as a child to someone else, and this was a business marriage, so it was a legal situation. Anne was sent from court to her family's countryside estates, but it's not known for how long. They needed her out of the way. Anne and Percy were in love, and they couldn't risk it. This is likely something that Anne would never forgive Wolsey for. Their later feud probably started at this very moment. Though at the time, Wolsey certainly wasn't feeling threatened by a girl who wasn't even noble. He was a cardinal. Percy was married off unhappily. Once Percy was married, they could trust Anne back at court. Upon her return to court, she again entered the service of Catherine of Aragon. Anne then befriended Sir Thomas Wyatt, one of the greatest poets of the Tudor period. In 1520, Wyatt was married, and in 1525, Wyatt charged his wife with adultery and separated from her. Coincidentally, historians believe that this was also the year when his interest in Anne intensified. He was likely in love with Anne. She may not have been, but they were friends. He wrote poetry about her, and she, she was at the very least his muse. The Boleyn siblings were very popular with the king. They were popular at court in general. They were fun to be around, especially Anne and her brother George. They were a dynamic duo. The pair were very close as siblings. During this time, Anne's sister Mary had two children. Because she had a husband and a boyfriend, their paternity is questionable. But her husband and her boyfriend were mates, and all three of them agreed that legally, at least, her husband would be their father. Maybe he was. But they didn't have paternity tests then, and King Henry was ready to move on in any case. When Mary had her second baby, who she named Henry, likely after her boyfriend, the king, the king decided that he was going to get a new mistress, Mary's sister, Anne. In 1526, Henry VIII became enamored of Anne and began his pursuit. Anne was a skillful player at the game of courtly love. This may have been how she caught the eye of Henry, who was also an experienced player. Anne resisted Henry's attempts to seduce her refusing to become his mistress, and often leaving court for the seclusion of her family home of Hever Castle. Fun fact, you can stay at Hever Castle for 265 pounds per night, or, if you're American, $321.29. Henry wrote love letters, and more love letters, and more love letters, with little hearts drawn on them. He was in love, or at least he thought he was. Henry even promised that if she would return to court, he would make her his official mistress in the French tradition. Anne was not up for being his mistress. Her sister had done that and then been discarded. For Anne, it was marriage or nothing. 
she was following in the footsteps of King Henry's grandmother, Elizabeth Woodville, and not settling for anything short of marriage. She regularly ignored the letters from the king. Anne wasn't acting very interested, but King Henry was used to being given what he wanted. He wasn't used to being told no. Despite her refusals, within a year, he proposed marriage to her, and she accepted. So I, she wasn't that opposed to it, or he was the king and she didn't feel like she could say no. He was still married to Queen Catherine, but both of them assumed an annulment could be obtained within months. The Pope tended to side with monarchs that wanted divorces. There is no evidence to suggest that they engaged in a sexual relationship until very shortly before their marriage, if at all before their marriage. That their love affair remained unconsummated for much of their seven-year courtship. Because that annulment was not as easy to get as they had assumed it would be. Before Queen Catherine was married to King Henry, she had been married to King Henry's brother for a few months before he had died. They had jumped through all the legal hoops to get the Pope's permission to marry. They were legally married. But the Queen had only one daughter. Henry, who also wanted a son, saw that as proof that God did not want him married to the Queen. If God wanted them to be married, they would have had a son. Just to clarify, Henry wanted an annulment from Catherine because he thought she had slept with his brother so that he could marry Anne, whose sister and maybe mother he slept with. What could go wrong? Anne started to be at the king's side, acting as the queen, but she wouldn't sleep with him until they were officially and legally married. King Henry seemed putty in her hands. King Henry's great search for an annulment would be called the King's Great Matter. If you said the King's Great Matter, everyone in England knew you meant his wife and mistress issues. If you have heard of the Protestant Reformation, that is where we are right now. Martin Luther had nailed his thesis to the German church doors less than 10 years before. Most of Europe was still Catholic, but Protestantism had made its way out of Germany and was starting to make appearances here and there. Anne had actually studied it a bit when she was in France. There are two schools of thought, but they both bring us to the same place. One is that Anne Boleyn was no longer a Catholic, that sometime since she had been in France, she had become a secret Protestant. At the time, Protestants were calling for European monarchs to stand against the abuses of the Catholic Church. Anne could have seen her potential relationship with the King of England as a way to further her religion's validity in England. The other is that Anne wasn't really Protestant. She was still Catholic, but she saw a way to convince the King to leave his wife if he left the Catholic Church, and then he could marry her. And that was Protestantism. That was the way to get what she wanted. We don't know which one of those it was. But what we do know is that Anne supplied King Henry with heretical material that told him that he didn't have to listen to the Pope. Just to be clear, this book was very, very illegal. She was like, hey, why don't you read this sneaky book that isn't legal to read? Because it's, it's very clever. She pointed out to him that there is no Pope in the Bible. In the Bible, God spoke to kings himself. He was the king, and he should be the only one second to God that the Pope was an unneeded middleman. She was appealing to his vanity. He didn't want to have to listen to the Pope. 
In my opinion, it was probably both. Anne protected men who were translating the Bible into English. In Catholic England, that was illegal. The Bible could only be in Latin. I don't think she would have done that unless she truly believed. And it was just an added bonus that would allow her boyfriend to get his divorce. In 1528, sweating sickness broke out, and it was aggressive. It began very suddenly, with a sense of apprehension, followed by cold shivers, sometimes very violent, dizziness, headache, and severe pains in the neck, shoulders, and limbs, with great exhaustion. The cold stage might last from half an hour to three hours, after which the hot and sweating stage began. The characteristic sweat broke out suddenly, without any obvious cause. A sense of heat, headache, delirium, rapid pulse, and intense thirst accompanied the sweat. Palpitation and pain in the heart were frequent symptoms. No skin eruptions were noted by observers. In the final stages, there was either general exhaustion and collapse or an irresistible urge to sleep, which was thought to be fatal if the patient were permitted to give way to it. They treated the sweating sickness by trying to stay awake until they were better. That, that was what they did. One attack did not produce immunity, and some people suffered several bouts before dying. The disease typically lasted through one full day before recovery or death took place. Transmission mostly remains a mystery, with only a few pieces of evidence in writing. The illness seemed to target young men and favor the wealthy or powerful. Court was dispersed to try and flatten the curve, but King Henry did not follow the COVID protocols. He had a theory that if he kept moving, he couldn't get sick. If the sweating sickness couldn't catch him, then he couldn't get the sweating sickness, and it couldn't catch him if he didn't stay in one place for too long. So he was on the move, and it seems like that worked for him. He didn't get sick. Anne had left for her self-imposed quarantine at her family home of Hever Castle. She did get sick. King Henry sent his personal physician to Hever Castle to take care of his mistress Anne. Well, his second best personal physician, because his best personal physician <laughs> stayed with him. But Anne got his second best one, but not his previous mistress, Anne's sister Mary, whose husband, the king's friend, died in that very same outbreak. Anne recovered from her bout of sweating sickness. Henry then went back to work, trying to get his annulment. King Henry was still a Catholic. He wanted to get his annulment, if possible, from the Pope. Henry sent his secretary to the Pope, saying that the last Pope was lied to by his first wife and they shouldn't have been given permission to marry. And please agree with him because he's the king. But Henry's secretary couldn't get to the Pope because Queen Catherine's nephew had sacked Rome and taken the Pope prisoner. So the Pope was siding with the Queen because the Queen's nephew had him held captive. Henry would also have needed a papal dispensation to marry Anne, because he had been, until recently, been sleeping with her sister. So the whole argument was hypocritical. He wanted a divorce, claiming that his wife slept with his brother because they were married. Maybe they did. Probably they did. But he slept with her sister. Like, it's the exact same thing. But it wasn't going to work in any case. 
King Henry made it Cardinal Wolsey's problem and just kind of said, figure it out for me. I want to marry Anne. Make it happen. Cardinal Wolsey did not figure it out. It wasn't an easy job. Normally, a king would ask for an annulment and the Pope would agree. Not this time. Queen Catherine had more support than King Henry did. She was the daughter of Fernando and Isabella, the most Catholic-y Catholics there ever was. King Henry was the second son of the guy who killed King Richard. Wolsey was going to be arrested and executed for his failure, but he had a fatal illness and died before it happened. This was a message to all of the king's other advisors. Support this divorce or be executed. Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cramner both pivoted. They both supported the king in making himself supreme head of the Church of England. Thomas More was still a Catholic man working for the king, but on the anti-divorce side. King Henry was running out of patience with his wife, Queen Catherine. He requested she retire to a nunnery, and she refused, saying God had not called her to a nunnery. So he did the next best thing and banished her from court. He didn't want to see her. And then gave her court apartments to his mistress, Anne Boleyn. That's right. That means that during the first six years of their love affair, the queen was right there for the whole thing. She witnessed the whole thing. She'd stayed at court and kept her opinions to herself through all these years. Public support remained with Queen Catherine. One night, Anne was out to dinner and was almost seized by a crowd of angry women supporting the queen. Anne was forced to pull an Isabella of France and escape by boat. Check out the episode on Isabella of France. It's episode one. By 1532, the king was done asking. He had decided he was no longer a Catholic and no longer had to listen to the Pope. He decided that he was the head of the Church of England and the Anglican Church. Henry could give himself permission to be divorced. Anne was made the Marquess of Pembroke, making her an acceptable rank to be future queen. Her father, who was already a Viscount, was promoted to Earl. Anne's new title allowed her to go to France on a state visit with Henry. She had spent her formative years at the French court, but now she was returning as the plus one to a king. There were feasts and tournaments. Anne was wearing Queen Catherine's jewels. King Henry VIII, now 42, and Anne Boleyn, 31, were secretly married in November 1532. Anne was pregnant right away. Her baby was born nine and a half months later, slightly premature. Not too premature because the medical technology of the time would not have been able to keep a health compromised baby alive. They could have also lied about the conception date if they were worried about the wedding and the pregnancy timing. Henry couldn't risk having a son with a woman who was not queen. So they were officially married for a second time this time not in secret. On January 25, 1533, Anne definitely would have known she was pregnant at this point. A small wedding, because also officially he was still married to Queen Catherine. And Anne had a grand coronation. Her apartments at the Tower of London were redone just for her coronation. She was crowned with the crown of Edward the Confessor, which is usually reserved for the monarch, not the monarch's spouse, and needed to do damage control. The people called her the king's whore. 
She had minds to change. Anne had worked so hard to get herself on the throne. Now Henry expected her to quiet down and have babies. But quiet wasn't Anne's thing. That's what Henry liked about her in the first place. Queen Catherine was stripped of her title of queen, and Anne was crowned the new Queen of England. Catherine was demoted from queen to the king's widowed sister-in-law, even though she was also an anointed queen and the mother of his daughter, Princess Mary. It became illegal in England to appeal to the Pope, and introducing papal bulls in England became heavily penalized. It was a crime. The Pope then officially excommunicated Henry. He was no longer a Catholic monarch, and that was a mutual decision at this point. Queen Anne, at this time, had her first child with King Henry. Henry had been sure that it would be a boy, that God approved of this marriage and would reward the king with a male heir. But he was wrong. September 7th, Queen Anne had a baby girl that they named Princess Elizabeth. They were so sure it was going to be a boy, they had announcements that were printed up, saying that a prince had been born, and they had to change it to princess when they found out Elizabeth was a little girl. You may have heard of this baby Elizabeth. She would grow up to be Queen Elizabeth I, one of the most recognizable monarchs of England to this day. The traditional jousting tournament to celebrate the birth of an heir was canceled. The king was disappointed. Princess Elizabeth was given an extravagant christening, though. Queen Anne worried that her daughter would be in danger, with the king's other daughter, Mary, as her rival for the throne. Two princesses with two different mothers, one very Catholic, one being raised in the new Church of England. This was going to cause some succession issues. Catholics did not think the king's first marriage could be annulled, so Mary, in their mind, was the next obvious ruler, as the oldest daughter. According to King Henry and his wife, Queen Anne, that marriage had been annulled and Elizabeth was the oldest legitimate daughter. But it had to be made official if Elizabeth had a shot. So the battles of the Thomases continued. Cromwell and Cramner supported the king. They worked with Parliament to pass the Acts of Supremacy and the Laws of Succession. The first stated that Henry was the rightful leader of the Church of England, not the Pope. The second declared Mary legally a bastard and her little sister Elizabeth the only legitimate princess. Thomas More would not go along with this. He was very, very Catholic, and he just couldn't go that far. He was executed, just like Thomas Wolsey had been. Princess Mary had been demoted from Princess Mary to Lady Mary. After her parents' annulment, she was labeled a bastard. The Catholics supported Mary, succeeding to the throne. The Protestants supported Elizabeth, succeeding to the throne. King Henry decided that to put his 17-year-old daughter in her place, she was to be made to move into her baby sister's household as a lady-in-waiting. Mary wasn't happy with this new arrangement. She claimed she was ill and took all her meals in her bedroom a room that was said to be not even good enough for a lady-in-waiting. The former princess was living in servants' quarters. Queen Anne, not a supportive stepmother, she ordered that the household refuse Mary meals until she ate with the rest of the household. Evil stepmother vibes. 
but she was doing it in her mind to protect her new baby girl from the sister that would be her biggest threat in the future. November that same year, King Henry VIII married his illegitimate and only son, the 14-year-old Henry Fitzroy, to Anne Boleyn's 14-year-old cousin, Lady Mary Howard. The king and his new queen enjoyed reasonably happy accord with periods of calm and affection. Anne's sharp intelligence, political acumen, and forward manners, although desirable in a mistress, were at the time unacceptable in a wife. The arguments were getting more frequent, and the makeup sex and hope for heirs were the main thing still holding it together. She was once reported to have spoken to her uncle in words that shouldn't be used on a dog. People were starting to miss the good Catholic Queen Catherine. The following year, on Christmas, Anne miscarried her next pregnancy, and King Henry was starting to have doubts. This is how his marriage with Catherine had been. Maybe God didn't like Anne either. Or maybe the king had a medical condition causing problems that that wasn't an acceptable assumption to make at the time. Nothing was the king's fault ever. It was the fault of the people around him. So this had to be Anne's fault, just like it had to be Catherine's fault. Anne was not very popular with the English people. She was called by some of her subjects the king's whore. Public opinion turned further against her after her failure to produce a son. Her public image had never been great, but it was dropping. Having a son would be the only thing that could save her reputation and maybe her life. On the 8th of January, 1536, the news of Catherine of Aragon's death reached Anne and the king, who were overjoyed. The queen is dead. Long live the queen. The following day, Henry wore yellow. He wore yellow in mourning, supposedly, but my guy was living his best life. With Catherine dead, Anne attempted to make peace with Mary, her stepdaughter. Mary rebuffed Anne's overtures, perhaps because of the rumors circulating that Catherine had been poisoned by Anne or Henry. These rumors began after discovering during her embalming that Catherine's heart was blackened. Modern experts are in agreement that this was not the result of poisoning, but from heart cancer. The cause of her death, an extremely rare condition that was not understood at the time. They knew about tumors. But if it wasn't a tumor, they didn't realize it was cancer. Queen Anne was pregnant again, and she was aware of the dangers if she failed to give birth to a son. With Catherine dead, Henry would be free to marry without any taint of illegality. At this time, Henry began paying attention to one of Anne's maids of honor, Jane Seymour, and allegedly gave her a locket containing a portrait miniature of himself because Henry's type was, and had always been, his wives' ladies-in-waiting. New wife, same old problem. While wearing this locket in the presence of Anne, Jane began opening and closing it, looking at it longingly. Anne responded by ripping the locket off Jane's neck with such force that her fingers bled. Jane was being inappropriate at best with Anne's husband. But again, nothing could be the king's fault, so Anne would torture Jane until she left court, removing the king's temptation. But Jane didn't leave court. Later that month, the king was unhorsed in a tournament and knocked unconscious for two hours. This seemed to have caused a change in the personality of the king. 
He was much more tyrannical after this injury. He did eventually regain consciousness, and the whole court breathed a sigh of relief. Henry, it seemed, had regained consciousness a very different man. This seemed to be when he went from being a happy, playful, loyal-to-a-degree king to an angry, irrational at times, tyrant king. There is something to be said for what would have happened if Henry had never recovered, because he woke up a very different man than he had been before. During the time he was unconscious, plans were being rushed to protect both of Henry's daughters. If he had died, there would be a war between the Catholics supporting Princess Mary and the Protestants supporting Princess Elizabeth. Not only would protection details have been sent out, but probably assassination squads too for both of the young girls. Anne had more to worry about. Upon entering a room later, Anne saw Jane Seymour sitting on Henry's lap and flew into a rage. Whatever the cause, on the day of Catherine of Aragon's funeral, Anne miscarried a baby, which, according to the imperial ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, seemed to be a male child. Chapuis, a supporter of the lame Queen Catherine, also commented that she has miscarried of her savior. And Chapuis' opinion, this loss was the beginning of the end of the royal marriage. And I think he was wrong. I think it was the final nail in the coffin of their marriage. There was no rebounding from this loss. Henry had risked everything for Anne, and as he saw it, she wasn't living up to her side of the deal. Anne was obviously upset, and she, holding her two-year-old daughter in her arms, begged Henry to hear her out and proclaimed her love for him. He did not accept her pleas. He just stared out the window, glaring. He was angry, and he believed it was all her fault. She was guilty. Towards the end of April, a Flemish musician in Anne's service named Mark Smeaton was arrested and accused of being the Queen's lover. He initially denied being the Queen's lover, but later confessed, perhaps after being tortured or promised freedom. Another courtier, Sir Henry Norris, was arrested on May Day, but being an aristocrat could not be tortured. Prior to his arrest, Norris was treated kindly by the King, who offered him his own horse to use at the May Day festivities. It seemed likely during the festivities that the king was notified of Smeaton's confession, and it was shortly thereafter the alleged conspirators were arrested upon his orders. Norris denied his guilt and swore that Queen Anne was innocent. One of the most damaging pieces of evidence against Norris was an overheard conversation with Anne at the end of April where she had accused him of often coming to her chambers not to pay court to her lady-in-waiting Madge, but to herself, the queen. Sir Francis Weston was arrested two days later on the same charge, as was Sir William Brereton, groom of the king's privy chamber. Sir Thomas Wyatt, the poet and friend of the Boleyns, who was allegedly infatuated with her before her marriage to the king, was also imprisoned for the same charge, but later released. Sir Richard Page was also accused of having a sexual relationship with the Queen, but he was acquitted of all charges after further investigation could not implicate him with Anne. The final accused was Queen Anne's own brother, George Boleyn, arrested on charges of incest and treason. He was accused of two incidents of incest with his sister, Queen Anne. 
Word on the street was that Anne had tricked the king and seduced him into marriage, and that she had slept with many men. Had she? I really don't think so. She was flirtatious and used to be able to act in a certain way, like a way that she had always acted and had always been acceptable to the king. Now that she had lost the king's favor, that all changed. She was probably set up in a kind of witch hunt. They pulled her ladies in for questioning and scared them. The king at this point was pretty irrational and just executing anyone who didn't agree with him. Anne's ladies, under pressure, gave up any instance they could think of pertaining to Anne being inappropriate with men. Did she flirt, smile, talk to any men? Guilty. The men were pretty much any man in Anne's life. Her musician, men who had visited her ladies, even her brother George. On the 2nd of May, 1536, Anne was arrested and taken to the Tower of London by barge. I'm going to summarize it because it's long and not written the way we really speak now. But in a letter to the king, she wrote, Sir, I know you're mad at me. This is so weird to me, though, that you had me arrested. I don't know what to say or what excuse to give because I don't know of anything that I did wrong. You sent me a message telling me to tell the truth and you'll assure my safety if I do. But you sent it by way of my enemy, so that wasn't cool. I understood exactly what it meant, though. So if you want me to tell the truth, here's the truth. Don't for one second think that I ever did this that I'm accused of. In truth, no one has ever had such a loyal wife as you have in me. I never forgot my place or our vows together. You picked me. I was a no one from nowhere, and you made me your queen and your friend. It was far beyond anything that I could have ever hoped for. If you ever loved me, please don't let your friends, my enemies, talk you into this. Don't put that stain on our marriage or on our daughter. Let me have a trial, but please make it a fair trial, a public trial. Please don't let my enemies be in charge of that trial. I will tell the truth to the whole country, and you will see if I am innocent or guilty. If you and God find me guilty, you have the ability to punish me justly. But please follow your heart. If you have already found me guilty, I will die, and the negative stories of me will bring you happiness. I hope God will forgive both you and my enemies, and that he will not hold you accountable for the terrible way you are treating me when we both meet him in heaven. No matter what anyone thinks, God knows I'm innocent, and he will clear all charges against me. If you have to find me guilty, please make it just me, not these other men that have been accused, because I heard that you had them put in prison too. If you ever loved me, or even felt happiness hearing my name, please do this for me. I won't bother you anymore. I will pray for you from my cell in the tower, May 6. Your most loyal and ever faithful wife, Anne Boleyn. Keep in mind, the first arrests were made on May Day, so all of this has happened in five days. It was Anne's last attempt to regain her freedom, and she gave it all she had. Four of the accused men were tried. Brereton and Norris, 
publicly maintained their innocence, and only Smeaton supported the crown by pleading guilty. Smeaton, as a non-noble, was also the only one who could be tortured into a confession. Coincidence? Probably not. Three days later, Anne and George Boleyn were tried separately in the Tower of London before a jury of 27 peers. She was accused of adultery, incest, and high treason. Adultery on the part of the queen was a form of treason because of the implications for the succession of the throne. For which the penalty would have been hanging, drawing, and quartering for a man and being burned alive for a woman. The accusations, and especially that of incestuous adultery, were also designed to impugn her moral character. It was a full smear campaign. The other form of treason alleged against her was that of plotting the king's death with her lovers, in heavy air quotes. Anne's one-time betrothed, Henry Percy, sat on the jury that unanimously found Anne guilty. When the verdict was announced, he collapsed and had to be carried from the courtroom. History was repeating itself. Princess Elizabeth was demoted from Princess de Bastard, just like her sister Mary had been. The accused were found guilty and condemned to death. George Boleyn and the other men were executed on the 17th of May, 1536. Henry commuted Anne's sentence from burning to beheading. And rather than have a queen beheaded with a common axe, he brought an expert swordsman from France to perform the execution. Because English executioners with the axe, they didn't have great, a great reputation. That sometimes there were mistakes. They were, they axed people in the back instead of the neck. It's sometimes it took multiple, they weren't great. And the sword guy, he, he at least knew what he was doing, I guess. Shortly before dawn, she called Kingston to hear mass with her and swore in his presence on the eternal salvation of her soul, upon the holy sacraments that she had never been unfaithful to the king. She ritually repeated this oath immediately before and after receiving the sacrament of the Eucharist. Her execution was delayed because the executioner was coming from France. She called for the warden of the tower and said to him, Mr. Kingston, I hear I shall not die before noon. And I'm very sorry, for I thought to be dead by this time and past my pain. The warden told her there should be no pain. Then she said, I heard say the executioner was very good, and I have a little neck. And then she put her hands around her neck, laughing heartily. The executioner was delayed further, and she wasn't executed. Two days later, on the morning of Friday, the 19th of May, Anne was taken to a scaffold that was erected on the north side of the White Tower. She wore a red petticoat under a loose, dark gray gown of damask trimmed with fur and a mantle of ermine. Accompanied by two fam female attendants, Anne made her final walk from the Queen's house to the scaffold, and she showed a devilish spirit and looked as gay as if she was not going to die. She kept looking back at the tower, thinking the king would at the last minute pardon her and banish her to a nunnery, as he had offered Queen Catherine. King Henry, at this point, had never executed any queens of England. No one had. It was unprecedented, and no one thought it was going to go through. Anne climbed the scaffold, 
and made a short speech to the crowd. Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor speak anything of that whereof. I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray God save the king, and send him long reign over you. For a gentler nor more merciful prince was there ever. And to me he was ever a good, a gentle, and sovereign lord. And if any person will meddle of my cause, I require them to judge the best. And thus I take my leave of the world, and all of you. And I heartily desire you to all pray for me. O Lord, have mercy on me. To God I commend my soul. It is thought that Anne avoided criticizing Henry to save her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter Elizabeth and her family from further consequences. But even under such extreme pressure, Anne did not confess guilt, and indeed subtly implied her innocence. The ermine mantle was removed, and Anne lifted off her headdress, tucking her hair under a coif. After a brief farewell to her weeping ladies and a request for prayers, she knelt down and one of her ladies tied a blindfold over her eyes. She knelt upright in the French style of beheadings. Her final prayer consisted of her repeating continually, Jesus, receive my soul. O Lord God, have pity on my soul. Over and over. It was said that her lips were still moving when she was beheaded. She was then buried in an unmarked grave. Her skeleton was identified during renovations of the chapel in 1876, in the reign of Queen Victoria, and Anne's grave is now identified on the marble floor. Anne was survived by her two-year-old daughter, the future Queen Elizabeth I, her father and her mother, and her older sister Mary. Her husband, King Henry, married her lady-in-waiting, Jane Seymour, 11 days after her execution. And that is where we will leave it for this week. What did you think of Anne Boleyn? She was charismatic and intelligent, the life of every party. But she felt more secure than she was in reality. She was trying not to be Queen Catherine, because that's how she got the king in the first place. But everything about her that made her a desirable mistress made her not a desirable wife. She really didn't think she was risking her life. No Queen of England had been executed before her. She had no way of seeing it coming. Having only one daughter, like her predecessor, was her final downfall. But the daughters of both women would become the first two queen regnants of England. So King Henry VIII was wrong. Don't tell him that, though. He doesn't like it. He, do he doesn't like to be wrong. His daughters were pretty cool. You can share your thoughts with me at longlivethequeenpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook or Instagram at longlivethequeenpodcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support me at buymeacoffee.com slash longlivethequeen. Long live to all the queens out there. And until next week, bye.